Welcome back to the Borough Shire podcast. I am Brandon Vaught, and as always, I'm here with my best friend, Father Blake Britton. Today, we are going to be discussing a topic of perennial interest to both of us and to the church, namely the sacred liturgy. Now, I know we're opening up a can of worms or (laughs) crossing a minefield, use whatever metaphor you want. The liturgy is one of the most discussed and most debated topics within the church, but we are here because we love it and we want to talk about it. We're not going to shy away from the tough points, the tough questions. Uh, But Father Blake, first of all, before we get to the liturgy, welcome. It's good to see you, brother. Thank you. It's always awesome to see you as well. And you're absolutely correct. We received a lot of requests from people to have this topic, uh, to give a reflection, especially for the focus of our show, which is not so much a show that's just about the liturgy or show that's just about theology, but really how can millennials and Gen Z live and become holy in this time? And one of the major responsibilities of that is being faithful and understanding the sacred liturgy. Uh, And that's close to a lot of people's hearts in our generation. Of course, I know that to many of our listeners Um, And so I'm very excited about this topic. Obviously, it's the center of my own life as a priest of Jesus Christ. The liturgy is everything to me. That is the reason for my vocation, is to sacrifice the Holy Liturgy to manifest God's holiness in the world, uh, and everything else flows from that. So I'm very excited about this topic. Um, I know that you and I could speak endlessly about this particular subject matter, uh, so we'll have to restrain ourselves as usual. But but it is, I think, going to be a very lightning conversation for, uh, for myself and for others as well. I'm going to take the official role here as timekeeper for this episode to keep <laughs> Father Blake under control. Because you're always so successful at that task. <laughs> <laughs> well, a one-hour podcast is a pretty successfully managed podcast for us. I think if we get it, if we if I take off my hat as timekeeper, we'd end up at two, three, or four hours. So uh, I feel <laughs> like we're doing true, a good that's job. True. Okay, here's here's how I'd like this discussion to go. So first. We'll begin by talking about the liturgy in general. We'll look at it etymologically and theologically. What is it? What do we mean by the word liturgy? Where does it come from? All that basic information. And then I'd like to spend a good deal of time on two topics related to the liturgy, namely Vatican II and the post-Vatican II reception, response to the liturgy. And in there, we'll get into all the prickly questions about Latin Mass or Ad Orientum or uh, the Old Mass versus the New Mass, all these all these flashpoints in the Catholic world today. Um, and then in the third part, I want to look at the role of liturgy and family life. And both of us have a lot of experience. You growing up, now as a priest, you interact with a lot of families uh, liturgically. And then I'd like to share some of the, the ways that the liturgy has influenced and shaped our own domestic church, our own family life at home. So uh, let's let's start with the basics. So, you know, as with any t- conversation, best first step is to define our terms. So yes. what do we mean by liturgy? When we say liturgy, most of us just think mass, but I'm guessing right. it's it's bigger than that, isn't it? Most certainly, most certainly. And so we enter into one of my favorite absolute subjects of study, etymology, <laughs> the origin of words. And the word liturgy is a Greek word in origin, of course, coming from liturgo, so liturgain. And it means an act of the community, but not in the sense of how it's been popularized nowadays, not meaning an act that's of the community, meaning that it's made by them or created by them, but rather in its original sense in the ancient Greek context, it referred to any activity that was done for the preservation and the good of the civilization. Now, most specifically, that referred to those activities that 
uh, were related to the temple sacrifice or the cultic sacrifice to the gods because that was the best thing that you could do as a civilization for your people. So even beyond paying taxes or having a good military or having crops, you had to please the gods, the, the divinities, in order to ensure that the preservation of the people were to take place by the blessing of God. So that was the center of the liturgical activity of ancient Greece, and that, of course, translated also to other ancient civilizations. Now, this is eventually picked up by the Church, and we come to understand through the grace of divine revelation that the premier community who is acting for the preservation of the whole is the Trinitarian community, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They actively reveal themselves in history in order to preserve us, in order to save us, in order to integrate us into the divine life. So the liturgy, as you mentioned so keenly, is not so much just a particular activity, although, of course, the Holy Mass is the highest expression of the divine liturgy, but the divine liturgy in and of itself is the constant act of communal salvation and love that's taking place within the Blessed Trinity, we see this realized through the writings of the Church Fathers specifically. Um, you have Basil of Caesarea, Maximus the Confessor, who's the most famous when he talks about the cosmic liturgy, so the notion that everything in existence has now been integrated through Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, being seated at the right hand of the Father— all these things are now are integrating creation into that great ministry that St. Paul defines as the ministry of reconciliation, bringing all things into the divine liturgy, the divine communal act of worship and love and preservation of reality in the heart of the Trinity. Now, we do have specific manifestations or specific participations in that divine liturgy, the highest and most important form of which is the sacrifice of the Holy Mass, and we can get to that a little bit later. Um, but these are temporary ways that we share in the eternal activity of the liturgical worship that is taking place within the life of the Trinity that's been revealed through the face of the Son. When you see me, you see the Father, says Christ, opened up to us by merit of the ascension of the Son to the right hand of the Father and the descent of the Spirit. And then that Spirit allows for the sacramental life of the Church to pour into each and every one of us so that we too can have the divine life dwelling within our own hearts. I remember when I first discovered that concept of cosmic liturgy from Maximus the Confessor, and then, of course, von Balthasar revives it and popularizes it in our time. It was so eye-opening to me because I'd always seen the liturgy as an end in and of itself, you know, and right. it's often described by theologians, rightly, in a certain sense, that the liturgy is one of those few activities which is done for itself, not for some Certain. other reason. It's not an instrument, instrumentalized action, but it's done for itself. However, through Maximus and Balthazar and talking with you, it, it became clear to me that, well, the liturgy is just a participation in something much bigger and broader, namely this eternal exchange of worship and love in the Trinity, and that our liturgies on earth, the Mass is one of them, not the only liturgy, but the liturgies on earth are only temporal expressions that only minutely get at what the cosmic liturgy is. And that, for me, was illuminating for all sorts of reasons, but one of them was because it made me—it allowed me to help people who are disenchanted with earthly liturgies. Like, we've all been right. to bad liturgies, and I mean, how many times have you heard people say, or if you're a parent, you've heard your own kids say— like, if this is what eternal life is going to be like, just an endless series of bad masses, right. I, don't want to, I don't want any part of that, that this liturgy is terrible. Like, I can't see myself just, you know, singing terrible songs and hearing awful sermons. And if that's what heaven is like, I don't want to be a part of it. But we can say, no, no, this, I mean, 
yes, that whatever you experienced was probably a bad expression of the earthly liturgy for sure, but even if it wasn't, even if it was the most gloriously transcendent mass on earth, even that would be just an inkling, just a small yes. taste of what this cosmic liturgy is. It's not the final thing in and of itself. And reclaiming that notion of the liturgy from the ancient church, which again is very prevalent. The phrase of this liturgy of the cosmos actually comes from the letters of St. Paul, if you read them in the original Greek. And so this is in the heartstrings of the, the original nascent church, um, of nascent Catholicism. And part of that is understanding that liturgy is much bigger, like you said, than the rubrical aspects, although those are incredibly important, and I do prioritize them as a priest. And we'll get to, again, we'll get to that in a few moments when we talk about the post-conciliar church. But the liturgy transcends those things. It's constantly happening around us, and it also allows the liturgy to spill out from those things to be now integrated into the rest of our life. Right now, we're sharing in the grace of the liturgy, the fact that you and I have the privilege to speak right now is by merit, by the grace, by the love of the divine liturgy taking place between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's residing in their divine will and in the liturgy that they're constantly sharing in. Um, and we share in that, again, temporarily through the sacramental life of the church. So it's just that invives your soul with so much more wealth and enjoyment of the liturgy when you have that expanded understanding. And you're absolutely correct. It protects you now from being caught up in some of these extreme conversations or these tense conversations about the liturgy, which are popular nowadays. You said something earlier that I want to circle back on, namely that liturgy can be defined as the work of the people colloquially, but that, that phrase is often misunderstood because it's right. interpreted as something we do. Like when we think of work, especially as Americans, that means I'm going to actively pursue some behavior. It's something I'm doing. Whereas you said, you know, it's it's actually maybe better understood as belonging to the people or, you know, it's right. something we participate in, but ultimately it's a work of God. And it, this is something uh, I remember when uh, I read Spirit of Liturgy with Benedict XVI, he was mm. so emphatic about that the liturgy is something received. It's something we've been given, not something we design, something we create, but something we've been given by God. And again, that was another really comforting and alleviating thing to know that we're not like the Greeks or the Romans where we're, we're trying to pull the right levers and do the right things to appease the gods in the way that, that they want. We're not trying to like mysteriously figure out the best way to please them. We've been told, we've been given through the church, this is the way God wants to be worshipped. And all we yes. have to do is accept it and participate in it, but that we're not trying to make it up. We're not trying to figure it out. There's no there's no despair of, are we doing it the right way? Is God going to be upset about this or that? If if it's given to us, we just need to receive it. Yeah, and, and herein lies the great distinction between Christianity and other world religions, that all the other religions in the world have semblances of truth, as the Second Vatican Council will remind us, semblances of truth because the human being desires the good, and so anything of human origin, of human creation, such as other world religions, they'll have good truths in them because the human person's oriented toward, towards that naturally. However, Christianity is quite different because it's not our own machinations that have created Christianity. We don't do the liturgy. The liturgy is done to us. <laughs> it's not us clawing for the heavens. It's the heavens seeking us. That's the great change. That's the great jest, as G.K. Chesterton puts it so, so wonderfully and wittingly. The great jest of heaven is, is this fact that we have been looking for God all this time, and then 
in some point in history, he came looking for us and he found us and he reveals himself to us. And, and that's the great joy of what it means to be Christian. You're right. We can take confidence in the church because in the end, the church is not my thing. The church is not a subject of my hands. I am a subject of the church because she is the bride of Christ founded on his body, blood, soul, and divinity. So there is a confidence in Catholicism that we can have knowing, uh, and a safeguard that we can have knowing that the sacraments, if we're faithful to them, if we're faithful to the teachings of the church, we are in the grace of God. <laughs> Let me uh, share a little story, and then I want to get your feedback on it. Um, sure, this is sure. a personal story. So whenever I first came into the church, I came from an evangelical background where liturgy was not emphasized. You know, on Sundays, it was a very low church, sort of non-denominational community. We would kind of make up our own things, and it was it was beautiful and emotive, and it stirred the heart and moved the mind, but we never focused on, say, liturgical rubrics or any sort of consistent pattern of, of worshiping. So when I became Catholic and discovered that the church placed such a big emphasis on liturgical rites and rubrics that, you know, again, this isn't something we're making up, that we have to receive it and, and we have to carry out the liturgy authentically, I remember getting really turned off by a lot of Catholics who I thought were just so fussy and priggish when it came to liturgical subtleties. Like I, I came right. into the church of the mind that the liturgy is kind of peripheral, or, or at least it's right. not the main thing. The main thing is having a personal relationship with Christ. It's evangelizing. It's the works of justice. The liturgy was like one among many things. And so it was really hard for me to warm up to the idea that, no, actually the liturgy, worshiping God, is the main thing. Uh, yes. Talk about, wh why is that? Why, why do you think Catholics should make a bigger deal of the liturgy and not a lesser deal about it? Yeah, well, there's two points I would make. One would be salvation history itself, and I'll speak about that in just a moment. And the other would be, of course, the focus of the Second Vatican Council, which was building upon the tradition of the Church, uh, clearly stating that the liturgy is the source and summit of the life of the Church, this is paragraph 10 of Sacrosanctum Concilium. But also, in the previous paragraphs, it says quite clearly, there is no higher obligation that the Church has than to offer right worship to God. That is her reason for being in the world. Why is that? Now, here's the more uh, profound theological reason. Why is Jesus Christ in the world? Why does God become flesh? Now, if we ask that question to most people, they'll give us the typically Protestant answer, which is to save us from our sins. And that's not untrue, but it's also not completely true. <laughs> it doesn't encompass the whole reality. So the forgiveness of our sins is the fruit of the higher purpose of Christ's incarnation, which is to redeem the failure of Adam in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, God places Adam in the garden with one express command to cultivate it. That word in the original Hebrew, its root is abad. Now that's one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament used over 280 times in sacred scripture. And that Hebrew word is most famously used in the book of Exodus when God gives the Ten Commandments. And he says, you shall worship, you shall love the Lord your God above all other gods. So what God is actually placing Adam in the garden to do is worship him, to offer right liturgy to the Father, because Adam possesses rationality unlike the other creatures around him. Therefore, he has the capacity to actually, with intention, 
recognize the creator. No other animal has that. Only we do as rational animals. And so we're able to recognize our origin and we're able to give adoration to that origin. Adam fails in that mission, of course. He falls into the grave sin of egoism. He turns inward, so now it becomes self-worship as opposed to God-worship. This is what Pope Benedict will coin as anthropocentrism as opposed to theocentrism. That's the major shift that takes place after the fall, is that now man becomes the center of the universe as opposed to him revolving around the Father. The poet once said, Adam's first step out of Eden was Christ's first step into Gethsemane. Adam's first step out of Eden was Christ's first step into Gethsemane. What, what he means by that is the fact that when Christ becomes man, it is to reconcile this fault of Adam, to establish a form of right worship in history, to not only redeem Adam's failure of having liturgy and right worship in history, but to augment it to entirely new levels, because now that liturgy is not just worshiping the Father, but it's bringing us and incorporating us actively, our own body and souls, into that worship. This is what the Church Fathers will call divinization, or theosis in Greek. So the fact that God, through becoming flesh, redeems our own flesh, and it gives our flesh the capacity to share in the life of the Father. This is the reason the Catholic Church exists. For that fact, it's not to teach a lesson, it's not to give morals, those are all things that flow from its primary reason for existence, which is to open up the capacity for humanity to actively worship and praise the Father. In order for us to share mind, heart, body, and soul in the adoration of the Son by the grace of the Spirit to the Father, to share in that life of the Trinity. That is the reason why Jesus Christ become, becomes flesh, to show us, once again, as he says, the face of the Father, that the Father and I are one so that you might be one as we are one. That great high priestly prayer, it's called, by the Church Fathers, John chapter 17, right before his crucifixion, Jesus makes very clear, this is why I'm here, that they may be one as I am one with the Father, and I am about to glorify his name. Doxa is the Greek used in that phrase. I'm about to give right worship, glorify God, and I will make you glorified with me, through me, and in me to him. Help us understand why the liturgy is continually necessary and why it's necessary to have the particular form that it does. You know, I think for a non-Catholic like me, when I was coming into the church or an atheist or agnostic, someone at the very furthest end of the spectrum, they'd look at something like what we do on Sundays or every day for daily mass and think, it just seems odd that those particular actions are how God wants to be worshipped. Like, why why do we have these specific rubrics of the liturgy? What's the logic behind them? Right. So Aquinas gives a wonderful answer when he speaks about the mode of the receiver. So the, the mode of transmission is always according to what the receiver needs. Uh, and, and what he means by that, and I'm sort of mis-summarizing in some ways uh, the quote there from the Summa, but is we are creatures composed of body and soul. We cannot have an abstract encounter with truth. It just doesn't happen. People have tried for centuries and for, mill for millennia. You had Ar Aristotle and Plato attempted this abstract encounter with the divine. And then going throughout history, of course, more recently after the Enlightenment, you have this scientific abstraction of the truth, which also ultimately proves unsatisfactory. It's not able to satiate the human longing because human longing can only be satiated by a physical and spiritual 
nourishment, my physical and spiritual encounter. This is why Christ gives us the form of his body, blood, soul, and divinity, as well as the other sacramentals of the church. This is the way in which we can most actively share in the life of God. And of course, he gives us to us, gives this to us in the form of bread and wine, in the form of water, in the form of these tangible species that we can understand, because that is the most appropriate mode of transmitting truth to humanity. Now, von Balthasar will make a very bold claim in his first volume of uh, Theological Reflections, which is on the Word Made Flesh, when he says that Christ actually reveals the fact, his incarnation, that human flesh is the main mode of transmitting divine mission, divine identity. So when God becomes flesh, when Jesus Christ becomes human, he's not partially revealing the Father. He's not partially human, partially divine. He is fully human and fully divine. That means the fullness of divinity it now has imbued human flesh. So once again, this is one of the reasons why we need to have that tangible encounter. This is the reason why it's not enough just to say, I accept Jesus Christ, my personal Lord and Savior. Because first of all, he's not a personal Lord and Savior in that sense, meaning an isolated Lord and Savior. He doesn't say, you know, uh, when you pray, say, my Father who art in heaven. He says, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. Uh, This is a communal act of salvation. But that being said, it's not enough just to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior because Christ is not a ghost. Because Christ has flesh and bone, and so do we. If this is going to be real for us, then it has to be something that's tactile, that that reaches us to the core of our being. Only that is sufficient to satiate the longings of the human heart. We see that in love. It's hard to love someone who you never see. It's hard to say, to have a long, as they say, a long-distance relationship. There's a reason for that. Would you rather want to talk with with your husband or wife over the phone or rather hold them? In person, you know, it's it's very obvious that this is what what it means for us as human beings to live and to encounter. So that's the reason why Christ gives us these these tangible, tactile, real ways. And this is also why it is absolutely necessary. The details matter. These details matter because they foster the living encounter with the Lord. And God is in the details. Sometimes you'll hear that explanation. Well, I don't think God cares. You know, if I fold my hands or if I bow my head, I'm like, no, I, I guarantee you, does. Look at the Book of Leviticus. <laughs> God's pretty darn specific. I mean, look at the book of Exodus. Look at the book of Deuteronomy. These are not just passing whims when God says, well, just love me however you feel like it. As long as you love me and you accept me, that's enough. No, no, no. He's very clear. You cannot eat this kind of food. You cannot do this kind of activity after sunset at this hour. You have to build the ark in this exact measurement. So the Lord is specific. Again, not because he's a dictator, but because he knows what works. He made us. Uh, he knows how we work from the inside out. And he wants to give us those gifts that foster a legitimate encounter with him. I think it's important to add that when people offer the objection, look, why, why fuss over all these details about the liturgy? God will still accept this praise even if we do this or that a little wrongly or whatever, that yes, you're right, Father Blake, that you know God does care about the minutia of the liturgy because he cares about, about wor- being worshiped in, in the highest form and the highest way possible. The, the objector is also right that it does matter your own interior orientation and well, attitude. Certain. And I think we like these discussions often get derailed because both sides are emphasizing one or the other. You know, the people right. that emphasize, well, you just love God however you want, are de-emphasizing the rubrics. And they, they, what, what they're concerned about is an 
over-reliance and obsession with the rubrics to the point where they become stale and desiccated and you lose right. the whole spirit of the liturgy, to use a popular phrase. Whereas on the other side, it's like, well, you know, it's not all just about having the right attitude or the right orientation or, you know, I just have a good sense that I want to worship God or a good intention. We have to do it the way God wants to do it. That's the basic yeah. echo of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all the way through today's liturgical rubrics and rites. But let me uh, and why ask, and why is oh, that? That's because we love him because we love God. So when you love someone, you know, like I remember I had a huge crush on this girl when I was younger, and she loved flowers. Now I didn't care too much about flowers, but you better believe that by the end of the week I was a florist <laughs> because <laughs> I you learn whatever you want, whatever you need to in order to express love, you know, when you really, really care for, for someone. So a lot of us who are guys and you had a crush on a girl or for you, of course, whenever you got engaged to Kathleen or what have you, you know, you learn what your spouse loves. You may not like tennis, but maybe Kathleen does. So you learn to love tennis. Um, the lover is the one who reveals the mode of love. You, you're not the one who dictates the form of love. The lover does. And, and it's, again, it's not in the sense of being a dominating factor. It's in, it's in the sense of here's the way to fully know me from the inside out. So why wouldn't I be faithful to those things? So there's the, I think the intersection between the interior disposition and the rubrical formula is the fact that God is the lover and he's expressing the form of love and we love him too. And we have this joyful, obedient spirit to conform ourselves with that same kind of devotion to the way that the Father wants to be loved. And that should, of course, invoke within us a deep spiritual interior relationship. So you're absolutely right. It's not one or the other. It's not one or the other. So it's not that we, you know, we're sort of freelance, charismatic, you know, over the top, just only only the spirit. Those are all good things, right? To have the fullness of the spirit, to, be, to love the liturgy, to love Christ, to preach the word. But at the same time, it's not just about doing exactly what's in the Roman Missal according to the number as if that will foster a personal encounter because it won't. It won't. So it's those two things together in cooperation. It's faithfulness to the rubrics, but also with a devoted openness and love for the spirit that allows us to have the fullest experience of the liturgy. Well, the liturgy technically includes all the sacraments. There are various right. forms of liturgy. I think we mentioned at the beginning, though, when most people hear the word liturgy, they just think the mass. The so mass, let, let's, right. let's focus a little bit on that particular form of the liturgy. And I want to hone in even further on a fundamental dimension of the mass, which I think has gotten overlooked a lot since the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. And this is where I think some of the more traditionalist critics have have a solid point, namely that right. the Mass is fundamentally a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. We hear often today about the Mass being a shared meal. It's a time of community. It's, you know, joining together in Christ as one body. And, and it is all those things. I don't want to deny any of those dimensions, but there's a, a hierarchy of of uh, dimensions to the Mass, and the most yes. fundamental thing it is, is a sacrifice. Talk about how the Mass is a sacrifice, and do you think that we've we've lost a sense of it, uh, of this sacrificial dimension today? Yeah, we definitely lost a sense of the sacrificial dimension. There are multiple reasons for that. Uh, the, the primary is that before the Second Vatican Council, uh, before the reform of the liturgy, there was a general sense, I'm not saying that the liturgy itself was flawed, but what I am saying is that there is a general sense among many people that I've spoken to, specifically baby boomers and Gen Xers who grew up with that liturgy, saying they felt very disconnected from the liturgy. 
it seemed as almost that was the priest gig and I had nothing to do with it. And there are some things that even right now are done in more um, in the extraordinary form that are also the fruit of the reforms of the Second Vatican Council that most people don't realize. You know, so for, for example, saying the Eucharistic prayer out loud, you know, that's something that was not popularized before Vatican II. You know, that, that notion that the people should be able to hear the Eucharistic prayer, should be able to share actively even just by listening to the Eucharistic prayer, those are all sentiments that come from the renewal of the patristic and ressourcement liturgy and also this influence that it has on Sacrosanctum Concilium. So even some of those things that traditionalists would take for granted are direct results of the Second Vatican Council. But that being said, you did have this sense before Vatican II uh, of not being engaged in the liturgy, at least people did. I'm not saying that was the liturgy's fault, but there's this general lull, if you will, in the liturgical life of the lay people. And so as a response to that, of course, as is typical of human nature, we go to the other extreme. And the other extreme is, you know what, maybe the problem was that we emphasize the priesthood too much, we emphasize sacrifice too much. No, this is about me. It's about the community. It's about the laity. It's about us getting together, having fun, enjoying each other's company. Well, of course, that's entirely off base. The Mass is primarily a sacrifice. Vatican II is emphatic on this on multiple occasions. Um, it even says that although it does desire to highlight more of the communal aspect of the liturgy as based upon the tradition and the patristics, that is never at the cost of the sacrificial notion of the liturgy. To really appreciate that, we have to go back to the sacrifices established by God in the covenants of Abraham and Moses. When you would sacrifice a lamb or an animal in the temple of Jerusalem, the priest, so you would transfer your sins onto the animal, the priest would then take that animal, would slit its throat, would spill out its blood upon the altar, would sacrifice that animal, then releasing your sins, forgiving your sins temporarily. After that, after the sacrifice was completed, then you had to stay in the temple precinct and eat the animal with the priest. So you had to consume the sacrifice. That was part of the ritual. It wasn't just the sacrifice itself that was primary, but now you have to also enjoy the fruit of the sacrifice by sharing in it the forgiveness that you've received from this animal. You have to now fully participate and take into yourself. Sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the Eucharist. It's, it's the Mass. But no uh, one would say like, hey, we're going to the temple today to have a good meal. To have like, dinner. We're going to get together to have dinner. Right. Yeah, absolutely not. And so it was a meal because it was a sacrifice. It was a meal because it was sacrifice. So the meal was a direct fruit a direct form of celebration of the sacrifice itself. So the sacrifice takes priority, and that's the same thing in the Mass. The Mass for all else is a sacrifice. That's what matters. That's why you don't have to receive Holy Communion at Mass. The only person that needs to do that is the priest, the celebrant, because he's in the persona Christi, he's in the person of Christ. What matters at Mass is the sacrifice, not the reception of Holy Communion. Although, of course, reception of Holy Communion is huge, and that's a very vital part of the sacred liturgy, Mass is valid whether the laity receive communion or not, and that's because it's about the sacrifice. And then if the laity are able to share in the fruit of that, I mean, of course, that is the ideal and the vision of church and of Christ to have, to, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you don't have life within you. But that is not the primary goal, the primary reason for the liturgy's existence. All right. Did you want to say anything else more generally about the liturgy before we got to Vatican II and post-Vatican II disputes? You know, I could say so much more, but I think we've I think we've we've hoed in on it enough. Uh, Vatican II and the post-conciliar, you know, uh, implementation of the council, I think, will take up enough <laughs> <laughs> enough of our energies. So, uh, so let's jump right into that because that's that's really what's at, at issue right now. You know. Yeah. 
So let's spend some good time here. Now, I don't want to rehash a lot of the things that we talked about in our episode on Vatican right. II. If, if listeners are curious about that, we, we did have a lengthy section in there uh, about the liturgy. And, and one of the things we emphasize, maybe the key thing, is that what Vatican II taught is not necessarily what was implemented. And so there's a big difference between, say, the Second Vatican Council's document on the liturgy and what the Council Fathers envisioned when they wrote that document, and then how that document was misimplemented over the following 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So right. once once we draw that line in the sand, I, I think some things begin to become clearer. Nevertheless, there, there's still a lot of people today that are continuing the so-called liturgy wars. I mean, if you right. want a taste of this, go on to Twitter and look at any conversation among Catholics, go on Facebook, go on YouTube. There's still lots of very heated discussion. And let me just uh, say one word of of compliment and praise about that, because I know a lot of people disdain it, but I actually see it as a good thing. I'm glad that people have enough zeal to fight over the liturgy, because yes. it's a sign that we care deeply and passionately about this. We recognize this is something worth you know, putting our foot in the sand and, and standing for and fighting for, because we believe it's an ultimate thing. So it's not bad that we're squabbling over the liturgy, but we need to we need to get clarity on, on a lot of dimensions of it. And one of the first things I want to get clear on, Father Blake, is uh, the terms. So you'll hear, I'm going to throw out a lot of terms here, and then I want you to <laughs> define them. Okay, so, and uh, by the way, a lot of these are dichotomies. So you'll see right. online, it's either this or that. Are you are you with this or are you with that? Are you in that tribe or this tribe? Okay, so let me draw some of these dichotomies. You can either define them or tell me if they're false dichotomies, okay? So, false. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> false all of them, yeah. yeah. So so Brandon and I have something called a liturgical buzzer. So we sort of, you know, <laughs> it's this, you know, in our minds, you say anytime you see something, you know, illicit, we, eh, we just <laughs> press the button. So I'm going to press the button now. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> I assure you all these dichotomies are false dichotomies. But anyways, please go ahead. <laughs> OK, first one, old mass or new mass? Are you a, are you in favor of the old mass or the new mass? What would you say to someone who throws out those two options? And <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, horrible terminology, absolutely horrible terminology. Of course, it sets uh, two liturgies that are perfectly legitimate in the life of the church, according to Samodum Pontificum of Pope Benedict XVI, and also according to Vatican II, it sets them at odds against one another entirely un unnecessarily. Um, there is no old mass and there is no new mass. Now, what most people mean by that is the Missal of Pius V, or more properly, the Missal, the revised Missal of St. John the Twenty-Third, which is the, the extraordinary form, as it's commonly called, and the Missal of St. Paul VI, which is called the ordinary form. Um, it's sometimes called the Novus Ordo, but again, that's, let's stick away from that terminology because it has that, that newness kind of stuff in it, and it sends the wrong vibe, I think, with, with the gravitas that those words have, have developed now because of this post-conciliar dispute. So it'd be better, first of all, to just call them by their names, the Missal of St. John the Twenty-Third or the Missal of Paul the Sixth. Both of them are absolutely legitimate liturgies of the Catholic Church. It is not one or the other. And it's also inappropriate to say the Latin Mass or the New Mass. They're both Latin masses, people. <laughs> you know, that's what I share when I give talks on this. I'm like, what I do on Sundays, even in the vernacular, is a Latin mass. It's, it's a mass of the Latin rite of the Catholic Church. So that is a Latin mass. So we have to also get away from that kind of language. It's an inappropriate distinction to say the Latin mass or the new mass. The Latin mass or the English mass or the mass in the vernacular. They're both Latin masses. 
Now, what we have to determine is, is it a Latin mass in the Latin language, meaning in the mother language of the church, or is it a Latin mass in Spanish? Is it a Latin mass in English? But it's still always the mass of the Latin rite of the Catholic Church. Uh, yeah, so those are very uh, unhealthy terminologies to use, and we need to, to go ahead and get rid of them and get them out of our vocabulary. Uh, and the sooner that we do, the better, because we're able then to freely have the discussion authentically and understand the fact that, once again, if you are feeling called to attend a Mass according to the Missal of Pius V, according to the Missal of St. John the Twenty-Third, go. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the Church is very supportive of that. The Church allows that. I mean, this is a legitimate form of liturgy. And if you're feeling called to attend a Missal of Paul VI, go. Go to that Mass. There is beauty there. And actually, that miss that Missal, which I know we'll talk about in a moment, when properly done, is actually quite beautiful and magnificent, that liturgy is, when it's done the way it's supposed to be. What is inappropriate to say and absolutely uh, uncalled for, and it's against the thinking of the Church and against the teaching of the Church, is to say that one of these forms of the other is invalid or illicit. It is not invalid to celebrate the extraordinary form, nor is it illicit, and it is not invalid to celebrate the ordinary form, nor is it illicit. And when we start getting into that kind of language, we have to watch out. I mean, that those are some very radical, bold claims there. Um, and we do, we do not possess the authority magisterially to make that kind of claim on the legitimacy of, of a Eucharistic liturgy approved by an ecumenical council. I want to stick with the terms here because I, I still want to unwrap more confusion. I, I see this sure. all the time online. So another term people will use is either TLM or traditional Latin mass. And I found when I'm talking to friends who use that term, they're often referring to different things. Sometimes it means just a mass that's said in the Latin language, which could be a mass, you know, according to the to the uh, newer missal, or it could be, you know, a mass according to a preconciliar missal. Uh, so, what does that mean? TLM, traditional Latin mass. Yeah. So again, that sort of goes with the same mentality of the old mass. You know, so the traditional Latin mass, the TLM, would be would be the Mass celebrating the extraordinary form. Now, there are multiple movements that happened after Vatican II, and, and this is all illustrated in, in my upcoming book, Reclaiming Vatican II, coming out in October. Um, but I, I go through a whole section of, of the traditionalist movement and its development. To, now, to be very clear, to be traditional is a good thing. <laughs> That's a good thing. To be traditionalists is not a good thing. You know, anytime that we, that we hyper-emphatically illustrate one aspect or another of the church that is not healthy you know mm -hmm. um so i am a very traditional priest i mean you know that brandon i know that you're traditional as well meaning that we love the tradition of the church i love the the tradition and the beauty of the church but that's that's different from saying that there can no longer be development in the life of the church or that uh that the church is not allowed of her own volition to discern and to determine uh, the forms of liturgy, the forms of catechesis appropriate to our age. You know, that's that's something for me to be obedient to, not not to determine or to judge. So the TLM uh, movement, that's that's part of what developed. Again, it became very strong actually in the United States of America too at, at one point um, with the with the traditional Catholic movement, and uh, and it's still popular now. I want to give some defense, however, to the Trilicious movement because there was a lot of reason to be upset after with what happened after Vatican II. And again, we could address that in a few moments on a later topic. But to go with the term, when usually when people say traditional Latin Mass, what they mean is the extraordinary form, and they also are implying 
that it's um it's the the right mass <laughs> it's the one that you sh- really should be going to you shouldn't be going to that other yeah. new mass you know to the novus ordo mass but come to the traditional latin mass uh and so that's what that term would mean again not a very healthy term to use at all you know it's, it's not because what does it do that it says that tradition is only available here tradition does not exist in the Missal of St. Paul VI, which is untrue. Matter of fact, the Missal of St. Paul VI has a lot more ancient things than even the extraordinary form because it has a lot more integration of patristic practices, um, which were not accessible to the Council of Trent at the time of its summoning in the 16th century. So it implies that, that the new Missal is not traditional, which is inappropriate. It, tr- it implies that the new Missal is not the Latin Mass, <laughs> which is also inappropriate. It is the Latin Mass. Uh, so th- those two things alone already in, in the very phrase itself are antithetical to the nature of the church and the nature of, of the, the sacred liturgy. I want to say something here that I've very rarely heard anybody say in the midst of these liturgical wars. And I, I think I can safely speak for the both of us, Father Blake, that you and I both love, reverence, and enjoy a, a beautiful traditional Latin Mass. And yes. you and I both love reverence and enjoy a beautifully reverently celebrated novus ordo mass to use that term what i found is it's very rare that you'll find people who say look i enjoy all licit forms of the liturgy when they're reverently and beautifully celebrated that more more often than not you have this a team b team mentality and i see it on both sides i don't want to just accuse the traditionalists of this, although I think it's more obvious among them that they say the traditional Latin Mass is objectively better than the Mass of St. Paul VI. And there's no question about it. It's not my personal opinion. It's not my belief. It just is objectively better. But I see that on the other side, too. I see some some, uh, people that favor the Missal of St. Paul VI reacting against— Yes, yes, who say the traditional Latin Mass is is objectively bad, and that's why we rejected it at the Second Vatican Council. But you and I, I think, stand—and it's always a dangerous spot to say, you and I have it right, everybody else has it wrong. (laughs) But I'm really convinced that this is the position of the Church. This is why the Church offers multiple— missiles for licitly celebrated masses is yeah. each one of these forms when celebrated beautifully and reverently you know add all the all the proper caveats but each one of them highlights a different dimension of the liturgy and they're they're meant to be complementary would you say that that yeah. was the vision of Vatican II not that all missiles and masses before Vatican II would be abolished because they're all objectively bad right. and we've created something better or is it more of this complementary vision Absolutely. It's a complementary vision. I mean, ideally, we would have both of those forms of liturgy celebrated every single weekend at every single parish. Uh, the, the PPF, which is the Program for Priestly Formation, is clear in saying that priests are still obligated to learn the Mass in Latin. I mean, that's very clear. And also that the extraordinary form is part of our tradition. I mean, it's very important for us as priests to be trained, to be taught in our formation about the extraordinary form of the liturgy that is part of our tradition. Pope Benedict XVI will speak about that regularly. The same is to be said, of course, about the Missal of St. Paul, Paul VI. Uh, that Missal is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
It is the fruit of inspiration of, this, of an ecumenical council of the church, and it is a beautiful missal when done appropriately. And it is possible to enjoy all things Catholic. <laughs> it is possible. You know, uh, that is that is the purpose of the word Catholic, you know, um, and it is, it is OK. And it is beautiful, actually, when you enjoy everything that the church has to offer. Um, and I do. You know, I, I definitely follow St. Therese's example in that regard. You know, I want all <laughs> and uh, and I'm the same liturgically. I love being able to uh, celebrate the extraordinary form, and I love being able to celebrate the ordinary form. Both are absolutely, when done appropriately, and I have seen also inappropriately done extraordinary forms, by the way, <laughs> which are not always pleasant. Um, but when they're, when both these liturgies are done appropriately and beautifully, reverently, with devotion, with true love, with true understanding, then they're magnificent. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. You know, and to throw another wrench in it, what also bothers me about this dichotomy between the old mass, the new mass, the novus ordo versus the extraordinary form is there are there are other forms of liturgy within the church that can be as equally beautiful and, and reverent. For example, one of the fastest growing movements in the American church is the ordinariate. So this was right. established by Pope Benedict XVI to welcome Anglicans into the church, and he they, they set up a, effectively a new missal. It's based on the Missal of Paul VI, but it incorporates some of the language of the Anglican patrimony, especially the beautifully elevated English prayers and hymns that come from the English tradition, which Father Blake and I are both Anglophiles, so it's yes. naturally appealing <laughs> to us. But we we have a, a couple of ordinary parishes here in Central Florida, and we uh, frequent both of them. And that liturgy, again, it offers something a little different than what you'll find at in the extraordinary form or the Missal of Paul VI, but it also is beautiful and reverent when done well. Add to that all the Eastern Rite churches, you know, you have right. Byzantine and Coptic and Ukrainian, all these other various forms. So I, I really great against this idea that you got to pick one of these two things and it's either all right. this or all that, but there's no other nuance. There's no other color in that picture. It's just either these two black or white options. Yeah, that's always very poisonous, again, in Catholicism and, and really anything. That's just an inauthentic and integral, uh, unintegral thought, you know, to have it so, again, dichotomized, so severed, so divisive. Uh, very clearly, you're absolutely right. The Catholic Church is the oldest single standing institution on the planet. 2,000 years of unbroken, unadulterated succession. And a lot of wisdom and beauty and goodness and organic development has taken place within that 2,000-year period that's led to over 30 rites of the Catholic Church with over 30 different forms of liturgy. And the Latin rite just happens to be one of them. And it, it, like, like you're saying, I mean, it is possible to appreciate all of them. <laughs> and I would encourage people, as a side note, this is now my spiritual director's side coming out, I would encourage you as a spiritual director and as a priest, attend as many different rites of the Catholic Church as possible. It is magnificent. Uh, I just and now as a priest, it's a little more awkward because it's weird for me to sit in a congregation, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I want to be on that altar. Um, so I have had the privilege of con celebrating at a Maronite uh, mass before, which was pretty magnificent. Um, it was really just unbelievable. But I encourage you to, to attend Byzantine liturgy, Coptic liturgy, again, Ukrainian liturgy or, or the uh, Maronite liturgies. These are wonderful expressions of Catholicism, wonderful expressions of the divine cosmic liturgy through the sacrifice of the Holy Mass. Uh, that would really, I think, also sever this deeply political mentality and this uh, almost exclusive mentality that we have right now in the American Catholic Church. 
And there's so many philosophical reasons for that. Also, just again, from our notion of politics and what have you that have seeped into Catholicism, not least of which is the categorization of conservative versus liberal. You know, that paradigm is not a Catholic paradigm. And it was popularized actually by the media during the sessions of the Second Vatican Council. Um, So that's what I call the Council of the Media. You know, they're the first ones to really put the labels of conservative and progressive or conservative and liberal on prelates, on the hierarchy, on clergy and on laity. But before that, you would never hear that kind of dialogue used in the church. So we got to also liberate ourselves from that kind of uh, those kind of un-Catholic categories. Let's go back to some of the other major battlegrounds in the liturgy wars. Um, I want to talk about language, so like Latin versus vernacular. I want to talk about ad orientum versus versus populum, uh, right. beauty, sacred art, music. We, we covered a lot of this actually in our Vatican II episode where right. we emphasized that Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Vatican II's, uh, Second Vatican Council's document on the liturgy, did not ban any of those things. It did not right. say <laughs> no more Latin. It actually wanted to preserve Latin. It did not say no more Gregorian chant. It said Gregorian chant should have pride of place. It did not say no more organ or no more beauty or no more ad orientum or, or any of that. Um, but I, you know, Father Blake, it, it's not an exaggeration to say that in most people's lived experience today, mm-hmm. all those things are gone. So right. what does a Catholic do with that? Because it can seem like post hoc ergo propter hoc, after Vatican II, all those things went away. So even if it right. didn't directly get rid of them, that was the effect. What, what do you say to people who are troubled by that reality? Yeah, so again, I, please watch our episode on Vatican II because we I'm able to give a lot more elaboration there about what happened immediately following the Second Vatican Council, specifically the distinction between the para-council and the true council, uh, and that has a lot to do with it. I mean, you did have people who intentionally misrepresented the Second Vatican Council with a goal of doing so. Um, you had theologians, you had, again, the media was very influential at that time, and they're reporting the certain opinions of specific theologians. And then, of course, just the time frame in which Vatican II happened. I, we're, we're talking about Woodstock. We're talking about the Cold War. We're talking about, you know, all these crazy things are happening around the world when Vatican II is attempting to implement uh, the Church's vision, the Holy Spirit's vision. And uh, so all those things are factors. We are where we are. So to answer your question more directly, we are where we are in the life of the Church. It is what it is. How do we move forward? We have to go back to the original intention of the Council, which, as you mentioned so wonderfully, did not dismiss Latin. On the contrary, Latin was not very accessible, nor was it very relatable to much of the laity before the Second Vatican Council. Vatican II was not summoned to get rid of Latin. The opposite, Vatican II was actually summoned, part of the reason why it wrote a document on the liturgy, was to revive the use of Latin universally throughout the Church. That's why, after Vatican II, St. Paul VI published a little booklet called Hubilate Deo, and it was dispersed to every bishop and also head of priories and monasteries around the world with the expressed command, mandate from the Holy See that this booklet was to be used to catechize and form the faithful, to form the people of God, to better understand the Latin liturgy, to better understand Latin in the Mass so they could more fully participate in the liturgy in Latin. That comes from St. Paul VI, who is often heavily criticized by the traditionalist movement for being one of the people that debunked sort of the vision and the tradition of the church. But again, all the evidence is completely to the contrary. Uh, He had a very clear vision of what the council sought to implement. Um, So that's just one example. What can we do moving forward? This, and you and I have spoken about this a lot, Brandon, 
this is going to be a grassroots movement uh, when it comes to the church's future. Um, the laity, the sensum fidei, the sort of sense of the faithful is awakening. Uh, and they're getting, they're getting this notion that, you know, things are awry. And I miss the fact that I can't celebrate a Latin liturgy. I miss the fact that I can't hear an organ or I don't hear Gregorian chant on Sundays. I miss the fact that my church doesn't have stained glass windows and that we're all sitting in a circle singing Kumbaya. Like, you know, all these sort of things, the laity are just getting a sense like, no, 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 no. So we're going to have to take it upon ourselves to really start learning these things and exposing ourselves to the teachings and exposing our families and teaching our children. I know that you'll speak more about that in a few moments when you talk about what you've done in your personal family to really take charge as the head of your household and say, you know what, within this house, I always think of Joshua. As for me and my family, we are going to serve the Lord. I mean, and, and there's going to have to be a lot of moms and dads who say that, you know, within our home, maybe we can't get at our local parish. I can say much more about the clergy and our responsibility. I can tell you that Again, my generation of clergy is starting to get more and more cognizant of the need to to re-liturgize and to re-catechize the faithful and so in, uh, in regards to the dignity of the liturgy. But um, but it is going to take in the home us, us saying to our children, you know, in my house, in my home, we're going to start learning this. And you know what? I don't know where to start. I'm just going to grab a missile and just start trying to read Latin and I'm probably going to stink at it. And that's OK, because at least at least I'm starting. At least I'm doing something, you know. Um, and that's beautiful. And remember that all the saints began that way. Remember that even the liturgy was formed that way. You know, the liturgy developed throughout history from people reflecting upon the fundamental, essential aspects of the liturgy, of course, the institution narrative, all these things that are non-negotiables. But as they reflected upon them, they, they said, well, what if we chanted this way to emphasize this aspect of the liturgy? And what if we did? And before you know it, we develop into one of the high points of liturgical development in the life of the church, which is the 16th century Council Trent liturgy, you know. But even the medieval liturgies were quite magnificent. So, yeah, all, that's what I would say in regards to people who may be distressed right now. Don't be distressed. Welcome to the church. <laughs> this is all part of the, of the organic, as John Henry Newman will say regularly, this is all part of the continuity, the development of the church. I mean, the church is living in history. She is not a stale institution. She's not a stagnant organism. She's a living body. Um, and she's constantly moving into the future as she seeks the second coming of Christ, the eschaton, which we're all waiting for. And so this is just part of the growing pains. Don't be disturbed, um, but take initiative, you know, take initiative. So Theodore Roosevelt famously said, uh, men are not born great. They have greatness thrust upon them. And so for us, you know, we we were not born a great generation, but the opportunity for greatness has been thrust upon us as millennials and Gen Z. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to take charge uh, and to really take our, our faith to course and allow it to be implied properly in our lives. I think a lot of people today are drawn to more traditionalist parishes and communities. Um, and I, I don't necessarily want to discourage that. I don't think that's a bad thing that people are drawn to the extraordinary form of the liturgy, for example. But I, I found that when talking to a lot of friends who are more drawn to that rather than to the Missal of Paul VI, they'll say things like, it just feels more reverent or it feels mm -hmm. more transcendent. You often hear a lot of feeling-based language, not for everybody, you know, of course, add all the caveats. There's people that really do understand and appreciate the inner logic and symbolism of the Missal and, and uh, what the celebration conveys. However, I think 
one reason people are drawn to that is because they don't have similar feelings when they go to their local diocesan parish. They don't feel like they're being drawn into this transcendent mystery. There's no sense of transcendent beauty. And so that leads me to ask you the question, do you think it's possible to answer the, the liturgical ache in people's hearts with a properly celebrated Novus Ordo? Do you think that people that have this ache and are finding it fulfilled in traditional traditionalist parishes can also find that in diocesan parishes? Absolutely. Yeah, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, if we were to have the Missal of St. Paul VI celebrated devoutly, again, ideally, which would, would be in Latin ad orientum, um, as far as the Eucharistic prayer goes, what the council does encourage is allowing the readings, the homily, and what they call the common prayer. So we say in the United States, the prayers of the faithful, um, for those things to be in the vernacular so that people can understand them better. Uh, but the Eucharistic liturgy would be entirely in Latin. The main responses liturgy would be in Latin. Again, ad orientum, beautiful, beautiful church, um, wonderful choir, singing Gregorian chant. If all those facets were there, it most certainly would su- substantiate the, the ache in their heart. You know, it would satiate it rather. Uh, and and I would say, in some ways, it would satiate more people, because again, that was a movement of the spirit for our age of Catholics. I think that's what's most diabolical about this whole thing, is uh, remember that the enemy hates the liturgy, and the one place that he'll want to cause the most friction is when it comes to how to worship and adore the Father. <laughs> I mean, this is the place that he's always trying to get to wedge in between. As you mentioned, there's value, of course, in, in discerning and debating forms of the liturgy. There most certainly is, but that's different from denouncing forms of liturgy or, or being uh, unnecessarily unduly upset about different forms of liturgy or how it's practiced. So we, don't, uh, we need to really understand that this is the liturgy that's been discerned by the Holy Spirit through the magisterium for our age of Catholics. And if it was done properly, I firmly believe that it would satiate that ache for the liturgical beauty in a lot of people's hearts. I am not speaking, by the way, just pie in the sky or ideologically. I've seen it personally. At my previous parish, I offered a Mass in Latin according to the Missal of St. Paul VI twice a year, once during Advent, once during Lent. Remains till this day one of the absolute most popular Masses at the parish. People love it. It's not the extraordinary form. And you know what was amazing is that a lot of people who had never gone to a Mass in Latin, a lot of people who would have never gone to an extraordinary form, came to that Mass. And for the first time ever, they were in a Mass in Latin. And that's a huge stepping stone. And it appealed to many, many people who would be, quote-unquote, according to some, liberal. But they actually came to that Mass, and they were deeply touched, and they said, Father, can we do this more often? So it it did speak to them. You know, it did speak to them. So, yeah, I, I absolutely believe so. I'm convinced. All right, let's shift now to the role of liturgy and family life. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is a topic that is especially of interest to me because it's something that Kathleen and I talk about and, and emphasize and prioritize in our family. But I'd be, before sharing my experience, I'd be curious to know you growing up, your mom has always been involved in liturgical ministry as long as you've been yes. alive. So how did your mom bring the liturgy into your family? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, my mother was central in this. Uh, and so she was raised in a very liturgical home. My grandfather was a music director at the Cathedral of St. Mary. Um, and then my first parish assignment was St. Mary. So it's just Our Lady's been following me around. But um, so she grew up with it in her home. You know, every single night they prayed the rosary together during the seasons of Lent and Advent. They fasted as a family. 
Um, they just really lived the liturgical life of the church. Uh, my mother, of course, carried that into her, her own children, and so and she took it to the next level. So my mother really is she's a master of the liturgy, just deeply loves the sacred liturgy and the liturgical life of the church. So we, she would even redecorate the house according to the liturgical season. Uh, she would, you know, during Lent, the house would be more austere um, or the whole family wasn't allowed to listen to music. I remember that. So like in the car ride uh, from school, for example, during the season of Lent, no radio, no music, you know, no headphones. Everyone in the car was quiet during the season of Lent on the car ride from school to the house. That's powerful. You know, that speaks a language. And that's my mother, her own devotion, love for the sacred liturgy being plugged into the life of the church and now allowing that to spill over into her family. And that most certainly had a huge impact on my vocation to the priesthood, hands down. I mean, by the time I was ordained a priest, I'd already felt years and years comfortable with the sacred liturgy. I mean, I put on that chasuble and I felt right at home because I was raised around it. It was in my flesh and bone. I mean, I, I, the only thing that I knew more, uh, more than the church building was the four walls of my house. But there was no other building I knew more about there's no other, other space where I spent more time than the walls of my local parish. And breathing, eating, sleeping, living the liturgy every single second, watching my priest get vested before Mass and do his prayers, seeing you know, Father Jose as I walked into the Adoration Chapel laying prostrate before the Blessed Sacrament, you know, seeing people do the Stations of the Cross on their knees outside. You know, I, I grew up in a Hispanic community, very devout Catholics. Um, seeing people pray the Rosary, Divine Mercy Chaplet during Lent, seeing the decorations of the church change and Advent and ordinary. It's just, again, I was just imbued with it and it absolutely changed and formed my life. That's why I still love the liturgy to this day. Um, so that's, you know, that's sort of what is, was its influence for me. Yeah, you know, we're trying to do a lot of those things ourselves uh, with our family. We want the liturgy to be the lifeblood of, of our family. You know, we want the liturgical calendar to be the rhythm by which we orient all of our activities. Um, so for our, for our, let me just share a few details about what that looks like yeah. in our house. I know we have a lot of young parents and young families who listen to this. And again, caveat, we've worked ourselves up over several years to a lot of these things. So just as when we talked about the Liturgy of the Hours, it's not an all or nothing proposition. You know, some of these practices take time to develop. And if at any point you feel guilty for not doing X, Y, or Z, or you know, you despair that your family's not at this or that point, that's not of the Lord, and that's not what right. this is meant to convey. <laughs> um, anyway, in our family, so we go to daily Mass, and that, for us, ever since Kathleen and I were married, was a non-negotiable. Every house that we've moved into, the most important factor, not even how big the house was or how much it cost or, you know, what schools or shops it was near, is is this close enough to a Catholic parish that we can attend daily Mass? Is it feasible for us to drive to daily Mass? So, that decision alone has centralized the sacred liturgy in our lives, that we've decided to live near a church. You know, the first house we lived in, we were only 12 minutes away from a church. Now we're three minutes from our church, and it's, it's mm. glorious. Um, that allows us now to go to daily Mass. So we take our kids to daily Mass every day. In addition to daily Mass, we talked about this at the Liturgy of the Hours episode, we do morning prayer as a family, and then we do evening prayer as a family. Um, most days we do daytime prayer as a family after mass. Usually we'll pray it in the car on the way home from mass. And then I do uh, night prayer with, with Kathleen, my wife, right before we go to bed. What that means is that between the sacred liturgy and the liturgy of the hours, the fixed points in our day are all liturgical. It means that we've locked ourselves into the church. We've attached ourselves to the church so concretely that 
everything else has to fit in between those things. Everything else has to fit between those fundamental commitments. And I would say as a dad and as a husband, nothing we've done, I think, has been better for our family spirituality than that. Commitment to mass, commitment to liturgy, the hours. Like once those pillars are in place, all the other things tend to find their right role. They, they find their right priority. They find their right emphasis. So Kathleen also does the things that um, you described your mother doing. So she liturgically decorates the house. So, you know, during, during Advent and during the Christmas season and during Lent and during the Easter season, the artwork changes. You know, we have different things on the wall. We have different, you know, we'll cover up the images during Holy Week. We'll have just little reminders and the decor that, you know, just walking around the house, what the atmosphere is supposed to be. That if the liturgical calendar is really directing the climate of your life, you should know that just day to day walking around. You, you know, it's if it's a dark and solemn day or if it's a day of great celebration and joy. Um, so we let our our walls be liturgized, if you will. We've we've liturgized the walls. Um, and then one final thing I'll mention here. I found great joy. I'm not sure if my kids fully have grasped this yet, but there's something so profound about receiving communion together as a family. Mm. Um, I pray about this almost every every time after I receive the communion and go back to kneel down that I'm never as close to my kids as I am at that moment. We can have the deepest emotional bonds, the deepest social connections, but it's it's through the liturgy that I'm most connected to them because I'm connected through Christ. And if Christ is the fundamental reality, if God is existence itself, that once you're both linked to that source of being, you become more intimately united at the metaphysical level than you ever could be in principle anywhere else. And so the liturgy for me is like the strongest, it's the, it's the bond maker of our family. The liturgy is what binds us so closely together. It's not just that we're going to the same event and enjoy it together, because like it wouldn't have the same effect if we went to the movies every day for seven days. We wouldn't have the same type of bond that we go to the liturgy together every day, we receive communion, and it's through Christ that we're united together. So the liturgy has this profoundly deep bonding effect on the family that I've I've noticed, at least in our own family. Yeah, and I've witnesses in your family and others, you know, seeing these these families prioritize, again, the liturgical life of the church, who form their personal spirituality around the liturgical life of the church, and how it influences the rest of their life. It's magnificent. And also, the chill, your children, in that case, are growing up in a specialized environment for holiness. And you will be in shock. I've seen this in multiple children now, multiple families that I minister to who live a life like yours, Brandon, that at the conversations that your eight and nine-year-old will have with you, your average eight and nine-year-old you know, who's raised typically nowadays is in front of a video game screen or is in, you know, on, on YouTube or something like that, and they could barely look at you and I and have a conversation. But when you raise a child with the liturgy, when it, when it inf- informs their life, and again, that doesn't mean that they're praying to the hours, 24 hours a day. What I mean by that is if it's shown as the high point of their life around which all the other points, including them prank, playing outside, going in the swimming pool, you know, seeing friends, all those things revolve around the liturgical life of the church. So it gives them this new lens by which to interpret reality. And even subconsciously, the child now is understanding reality through Jesus Christ. And you will be amazed at an eight and nine-year-old who will sit down with you and talk about 
a mystical experience that they had and, or a dream that they had that deeply touched them or, or they were praying and they started crying while praying the rosary because they felt Mary's heart. You know, they'll say different things like this and you're sort of like, oh, you know, is this just a child thing? Or are they just saying this? No, those are real. We have to take that seriously because in the end, this child is being raised in an environment that is conducive to sainthood and holiness. And that's special. Um, and so you'll, I, I'm praying that this podcast will inspire more families to prioritize liturgical life because it really will transform your family and its focus. And if I can mention a couple resources, if you want to better link your family's culture and life to the liturgy, um, a couple of good books that have really helped my wife and I are Around the Year with the Von Trapp family. I think we mentioned this on a, on a past episode and the funny story that, uh, so this is, uh, who's this written by? It's Maria Von Trapp. Maria yeah, Von Maria Trapp. Von Trapp. Yeah. So she's one of the the kids of the real life family depicted in The Sound of Music. So The Sound of Music is based on a real family. And one of the daughters, Maria Rontrap, wrote a book about how their parents were were all in on this liturgical living. They had special songs for feast days and special food. And she talks about how they liturgized their house throughout the year. And I've heard about this book. It's somewhat legendary, but it was out of print for decades and decades. But I was finally able to tracked down a copy and I bought it. It was like 80 bucks or something super expensive. And I got it and I hid it away because I was going to give it to Kathleen for our anniversary. And, and I did. And she loved it. And it was, you know, one of the most thoughtful gifts I think I've ever given her. Uh, but then like a week later, I forgot who it was. Um, it was Sophia a Institute. Post- Sophia, Preston. yeah. Announces we're re-releasing it like in a $10 paperback. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad it's, it's now more widely and easily available because it's a real gem of a book. Um, so is. that one's that was called Around the Year with the Von Trapp Family. Another good one, my friend Kendra Tierney, uh, a very popular Catholic blogger, has a book called The Catholic All-Year Compendium, Liturgical Living for Real Life. It's written by Kendra, who's a mother of, I think, either nine or ten kids. So she's got a huge family and does a great job of integrating the liturgical year into the house and gives you lots of practical tips and activities and advice on what to do in your house. And then finally, my good friend Haley Stewart um, writes a lot on liturgical living on her blog, which is called Carol, uh, Carrots for Michael Moss. And then she also just released a six-part video course for our Word on Fire Institute on liturgical living. So this exact idea of how to bring the liturgy, not just from the church, but into your home. Um, so I'll link to all of those things in the show notes, and I highly recommend them. Yeah, I love all those resources, especially the first two in particular I've read thoroughly, and I even have extra copies in my office that I give to families anytime that I'm doing counseling or even marriage counseling with couples who have children. I'm like, here, you know, take these books, read them. If you in- integrate them into your family, they're worth it. You know, um, I-, I don't get any kickbacks from Ignatius Press. On the- <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about on our last episode, we're still waiting the Ignatius Press uh, sponsorship here. Yeah, yes, endorsements. <laughs> we're not desperate. We just really want it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're fine, so I, though. I think what Father Blake is saying is if he has a big stack of these books in his office, so if you want to drive down to Lakeland, he's, he's passing them out like candy. Uh, <laughs> that's That's how, what I heard anyway. Well, I'll definitely need a sponsorship in order to do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. They well, are. I mean, they're wonderful text, really, really amazing text. But I do strongly suggest everyone to read. And of course, those other resources that you mentioned. Let's wind this down to a close. Um, per usual, I think we've bit off a bit more than we can chew. The sacred liturgy, we could talk for hours that it deserves its own whole series of 
of episodes. And, and maybe there's something we said here that that prompted more questions for you. If that's the case, leave them in the comment boxes. Most yep. of our episodes are spurred on by questions or recommendations we get from listeners. So if there's something we said that you think you'd like to hear a whole nother episode on, let us know and uh, we'll add it to our ever-growing list here. Yes. Uh, be- <laughs> before we wrap up, Father Blake, any any final comments or points that you want to make when it comes to the sacred liturgy? Yeah, uh, St. Benedict in his rule names as the top priority of the liturgy when he says nothing is to be preferred to the work of God. What is the work of God? The liturgy. That's the primary work of God. The fact that he establishes for us in his gracious nature and his gracious goodness, he establishes for us a form by which we are able to actively participate in his divine life through his son by the grace of the spirit in the church. So please, my dear sons and daughters, I, I implore you as your spiritual father, I implore you as a priest, really take to heart this episode that we've discussed and really fall in love with the sacred liturgy allow it to imbue your mind heart body and soul if you maybe haven't had that much of a devotion for the liturgy or or have seen it as something periphery up to this point this is a summons from the holy spirit let's let's refocus and get it back into the center of our lives and our hearts if you already have a great love for the liturgy and hopefully this inspired you to go even more deep and to understand it more profoundly and if you've had tensions or critiques of the post-conciliar liturgy, or maybe tensions and critiques against the pre-Vatican II liturgy, either or, I pray that this has dismantled some of those and allowed you more freedom to embrace the beauty of both forms of liturgy, which are perfectly valid and listed, um, and that really can feed and nourish the soul in their own special ways. One of the terms I recently discovered was in contradiction to the rad trads, you know, that's usually a polemical term for radical traditionalists who Mm -hmm. either reject the council or, you know, hate the post-conciliar missiles. I've heard the term glad trads, that what we need are are more people who celebrate and revere tradition, including past missiles and past forms of the liturgy, but are also glad and joyful. They're not out to attack and dismiss other forms of liturgy. And I think that's that's the attitude we're trying to capture through this podcast. Do Father Blake and I like the traditional Latin Mass? Yes. Do we like other types of Latin Mass? Yes. Do we like the Novus Ordo? Again, probably not the right term, but do we like that Mass? <laughs> yes. Yes. We love every type of beautiful, beautifully celebrated, reverent, transcendent form of Mass. All of them can be done with those dimensions. All of them can be done yes. well. Um, so if, if I could make one final point, that would probably be it. Um, I forgot to mention at the very beginning, what inspired this episode on the Sacred Liturgy was an email from one of our listeners. His name's Jackson Booth, and I, I just want to read it. It's about a paragraph long because it was really encouraging. He, he wrote this back in Easter, or so a few months, a couple months ago. He said, Happy Easter. I have another suggestion for an episode. Can you make an episode focusing on the liturgy? I've heard Father Blake mention the importance of the liturgy. Uh, in the Christian life a few times, and I'd love to hear more. Also, if you have any book recommendations on the Mass or Liturgy, I'd love to hear them. But uh, side note, he says, to me, this is the main note, not the side note. Uh, (laughs) I mentioned that I'm in my university's RCIA program, and I was just baptized and confirmed into the church at the Easter Vigil. I thank you for your podcast. I was first introduced uh, to Catholicism through both Word on Fire and your Burroughshire podcast, and it continues to be a great source of wisdom on my walk with Christ. Words can express my gratitude, glory to God. 
So I just wanted to give Jackson a shout out and say uh, thank you for the email. Congratulations on coming into the church. I hope this episode was along the lines of what you were looking for. If not, leave a comment, send a, send a question. <laughs> Maybe we can address some more of the points later. But uh, thanks, Jackson, and God bless you. Yeah, absolutely, Jackson. Congratulations to you, and thank you for saying yes to Christ, to coming to full communion with his Catholic Church, and, and we're just so proud of you. And when I read that email, it meant the world to me. It really did. And I know many of you email us and send us your reflections on the podcast, and we read them all. We do. We read them all. And again, we can we respond to them all? No, <laughs> there's a lot of them. But I can tell you that I read through everything that I receive, and it's always so touching and inspiring for me as a priest. I know for both of us as the, as the co-host of this show to know that our show is reaching so many hearts and souls. So thank you. Again, congratulations. And, uh, and we're just so grateful to all of you and all of our listeners. God bless you all. Well, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for commenting. We love being with you. We love doing this podcast. And until then, we'll see you next time here on the Borough Shire podcast. Thank you.